Hello, my name is David Smith. I've spent the last year and a half writing my autobiography. This is an idea that came to me while I was in hospital after suffering a very severe parachute crash landing, which I was very lucky to survive from. Um, I'm 68 years old, and um, I started the prologue with a quote from William Wallace. Every man dies, but not every man really lives. Well, as I said, I'm 68 years old, and I have certainly lived my life to the full. Some of my achievements and ventures and accomplishments. Well, I was born in 1955 with a hole in the heart, so I was lucky to survive that. I was lucky that I contracted polio when I was three in 1958, because if I hadn't contracted polio, they wouldn't have found the hole in the heart, and I wouldn't have lived past 20. So I've been a cripple all my life. I had major heart surgery to admit heart repaired then. And I grew up on a cattle farm in the 50s and 60s, pretty much unsupervised. My dad was at cattle market every day. My mum was at work and during school holidays, me and my brother had the run of the farm and we got up to all sorts of mischiefs. Mm. Um, whilst unsupervised, one hot summer's day, I walked into the um, the dairy where the milk's bottled and there's a big fridge there about six foot high, which is lovely and cool. I still have my woolly pulley on. I remember opening the fridge door and feeling the cold air hit my face. As I say, I'm only four or five years old. So I stepped inside, pulled the door to, and it went black. And then I worried because there was no handle on the inside and I couldn't get out. This story, my mother's told me how she found me. She was a few hundred yards away, across the tr track, the other side of the barn, in our house, preparing lunch. And she could, it's a mother's instinct to hear her own baby cry. And I must have been screaming. Um, the only thing I remember is when my mother found me and held me in her arms. But my mother told me how she found me. She thought the screaming was coming from the barn, but when she got to the barn, it, it was even fainter. So then she thought it was coming from the farmhouse because they had a, a, a toilet, which was in a brick building on the end of the house in, from the front garden, which was a deep hole in the ground. And there was a plank of wood across, a, well, a wooden bench seat with two holes in it, so husband and wife could sit together and do the whatever you know and she thought I'd fallen down there so she went and looked in and I wasn't down there but the screaming was a bit louder and then she thought it was coming from next door because the tractor shed next door had a similar toilet for the workmen so she went and checked that one and I wasn't down there but the screaming was a little bit louder again now the tractor shed was next to the dairy where I was locked in the fridge and she traced me to the dairy, eventually opened the door and rescued me. So, had I not been found, I could have got hypothermia or I could have suffocated. My autobiography, did I say it's called Two and a Half Cats? You've not got to the, you've not got to the introduction yet. But well, it's called Two and a Half Cats. You might wonder how can you have half a cat, but um, I'm referring to the fact that a cat's got nine lives. So you can imagine how many close experiences, near-death experiences I've experienced in my lifetime. I've done 
every single adrenaline sport and adventure that I've ever seen and heard of. I've tried it. You know, I've not stopped at anything. I've kept myself busy all my life. Some of my achievements, um, oh, we made dens in the hay as children. And one day when there was me and my brother and my, brother, my elder brother, Trevor, and his friend, Kenneth, and we decided to build a tunnel in the haystack, which was built out of bales. Bales are like big bricks held together with hessian string. And we got to the, the, the stack and we cut the strings on one bale and you could pull like cakes of hay out. And Trevor and Ken put them in a big sack and carried them round and fed them to the cattle, which were chained up all winter inside, eating, and they had hay to get rid of the evidence while we were building this tunnel, you see, digging a tunnel. And being me the smallest, I went into the space of the first bale, which is about 15, 18 inches wide by about 12, 13 inches tall, like, and it was about three foot long. Some of them are a bit longer than that, but it, it left effectively a little tunnel I could crawl in, cut the strings of the end of the next bale and start passing the cake and out the cakes of hay past my body and pushing them out with my feet. And then as I progressed up the tunnel, I had a bicycle lamp for light. Um, I cut the strings of the next bale and Trevor and Ken pulled the hay out and carried it round and fed it to the cattle. But I didn't realise I kept cutting and pushing that I got stuck and I pushed a lot of hay back behind me and pushed, stamped it down my feet and I was cocooned in this little section of the tunnel and the bicycle lamp went dim and the battery started to fade and I was coughing with all the dust and I realised, oh heck, I'm stuck because I couldn't pull the hay back up from my feet. Trevor and Ken were worried, they were panicked. But they did eventually pull the hay out and I felt, after what seemed like a long time, a bit of fresh air coming in and we got out and that, that could have been another cat's life when I was a little boy. Then um, What interests me most of all is the, the near-death experiences you had in your 20s, the motorcycle crashes. Yeah, well, I'll get to that. The next was, uh, because I was crippled with polo, I wasn't very good at walking, but I was good with anything on wheels. And I used to ride my little tricycle, race it round on a little track with corners, super, and I used to ride it round and on, tilt it over onto two wheels, because one of the wheels, free wheel, one was driven by the sprocket. And I could ride it on two wheels on each side, my three-wheeler bike. And then um, I made bogies out of pram wheels and out of wood and I was good with sawing and nailing you know because we were always doing jobs on the farm and I made myself a bogey and I made my own braking system which was a piece of wood going across which was on a piece of wood that was hinged and I leaned back on the hinge part and it pushed the cross piece onto the wheels which you could lean back to lock the wheels or re lean back gently to, and they were held forward with a spring so I could go, go down hills but all the hills Around the farm, we'd it tracks and bumpy, and so it was always not a very good ride. But when Thorfam Estate was built, they put the Harewood driving before any houses, which comes to Thorpe up a big hill, and it was tarmacked. So at 12 or 13 years old, I had the need for speed. I started going down this tarmac hill, 
And as you go down Harewood Drive, it's quite steep and it levels out and it turns a right hand bend as you get near the bottom on Albert Street. And I went down faster and let, used less brakes and I pulled it to the top and went down a bit faster and faster until eventually on my last run, the, the rubber solid tyres lost traction on the tarmac and it started to skid and there was a transit van parked against the kerb on the right on the inside of the bend and the bogey skidded and went under the transit van and my feet were on the crossbar to steer it. Now the right wheel of the bogey hit the front left wheel of the van which pushed it back which raised my right knee up which impacted the van bumper and all that kinetic energy of me and a big fat friend on the back was discharged through my hip and it smashed my hip socket. Nice. That was the first of many broken bones. Ugh. I screamed and screamed. I didn't know. And it was very alarming screaming because people were coming out of the houses from all around. And I was, in the, nobody could touch me or move me. They couldn't get me well instant off. They couldn't get my leg to move. I was, they couldn't move me. When the ambulance arrived, I think they sedated me and lifted me onto a stretcher and took me to A&E at the Oldham Royal. And I'd had a big dinner. So they said, oh, we can't give you anaesthetic. You have to wait four hours. But I was sedated. And when I came to, after surgery, I had a plaster cast from my right ankle up to my armpits. And um, it was still very painful when mum and dad were visiting me. They had to creep into the room because the footsteps on the wooden floorboards were vibrating the bed. And I said, oh, stop it, stop it, stop it. But that was my first of many broken bones. As I grew up, I, I got interested in bicycles and um, I started doing sections. And then my friend, my school friend, dug an old, ex old army bike from the Second World War, which had been rusted away in his backyard. And um, the tank had rusted through, the mud guards had rusted through, and it was a load of rust, but we cleaned it up. We took the carburetor off and cleaned it. We took the spark plug out and it actually had a spark. So we mixed some petrol with some oil because it was a Villiers Excelsior 98cc two-stroke. And we took all the fairing off and we took the mud guards off and stripped it down so it was lightweight. And we tried bump starting it and it spluttered a bit and coughed and we pushed it for ages. What did you use as the petrol tank? A squeezy bottle. because We had got a fairy liquid bottle and put it onto the fuel line, and it had fire up and start, and then it had stop. And we're ah, right. It needs air to get in to let the petrol out. It was creating a vacuum. So we put pinholes in the top of the, the bottom of the squeezy bottle, which was the, at the top, because the, the spout was pointing down. So air could get in. And guess what, it fired up. And that was my first ever ride on a motorcycle. And I loved it. We had a piece of plywood with a piece of foam on it for the seat because it was all basically just a frame with wheels and an engine and um, we rode it all around Oldham Edge. So as soon as I was 17, I got a motorbike, passed my test and I went everywhere on full throttle. I was like a typical boy racer hooligan, king of the road, you know, fast overtaking everything. When I passed my test, I got a 500cc Honda 4, 504 cylinder, because it was 
all chrome. Didn't you lie to your dad about that? that was there? No, that was later. I kept crashing that, but then I got a bigger one. I got a 750 Honda, and I had the biggest first serious crash on that. Um, I hit a midi head on at 100 mile an hour, and uh, I could see the impact was inevitable, and I knew that I would be dead if I didn't get off the bike, so the only way I could avoid it was my feet on the foot pegs, my hands on the handlebars, and I was weight training, and I was really fit and strong at this point as a teenager, and I pushed down as hard as I could, leapt into the air, cleared the car, right up doing a somersault over the roof of the car, and flying through the air, and I was straight, as I, as I was turning, my head was pulled up and my helmet, full face came across my eyes and my legs were pulled the other way because I was spinning and I couldn't see anything, but I knew that there was concrete, reinforced concrete lamp posts along the side of the road and I was still doing close to 100 mile an hour flying through the air. I thought, if I hit one of these lamp posts now, that's going to be curtains, it's going to cut me in half. I remember thinking this and it all happened in slow motion and then I reached up and pulled my helmet down. I'd done a complete turn by this time and I could see the ground coming up. And I landed on my feet, skidded onto my knees and my elbows and slid along and came to a stop. This was at the bottom of Buxton Road in Shaw and there's a little, where Buxton Road joins Shaw Road, Milner Road. There's a block of 10 tourist houses and I ended up at the end of the 10th tourist house. So that's how far I flew and skidded. And the car was on Buxton's Road, pushed against the gable end of the house. Um, the roof had buckled up. My bike had been embedded in the side. It had been, bent this mini like a banana. All the windows were shattered and it was a write-off. And the front wheel of my bike, there's a photograph in my autobiography, was completely compressed flat against the engine block between the down. Um, tubes on the front end. That is the the forks, the wheel, the mudguard, the number plate, the the brake caliper, the disc. Everything was squashed flat against the engine. There's a, photo, a good photograph of that with me on crutches at the side of it. <laughs> well, if you do the editing properly, it should be right here for you to see. Yeah, um, that was. One of the most serious motorbike crashes I had, and I got fed up of cars pulling out in front of me. So in 1975, um, that was when I was 20, after three years of crashing, I decided to go where there's no cars. And um, so I got myself an ACU competition license and started trials riding. That's when my skills really started to learn. I entered in the local trials every Sunday, and every evening after work, I'd go out round the fields and round the tracks, round the back of Tandlills and to a big sand quarry over at Castleton and built, make my own sections. And I got fascinated. Oh, one of the trials I went to, a guy, an expert, came down the lane, turned into the paddock gate, went in between all the cars and vans, right up to his car and trailer, all on one wheel, gobsmacked. And then he put the front wheel down right in the slot of the trailer. I thought, wow, I want to do that. So, every night after work, I'd go on my trials bike to this sand quarry because there were some flat areas there and practice doing wheelies. Alan must have fell off over the back, looped it, too much throttle, too high, 
hundreds of times. Sometimes you're going slow enough to jump off and run with the bike and keep hold of the bars and put it down. Sometimes you just have to launch the bike forward and land on your ass. But I didn't give up, I kept trying. And I figured out that once I was going over about 25, 30 miles an hour, the gyroscopic effect of the wheels made it a lot more stable. It didn't tend to keel off to one side or the other. So the faster you go, the easier it is. But then I still had the trouble with too much throttle and turn the throttle off, it didn't stop. But the trials bike had a decompressor lever on the thumb for going down hills, which gives you more engine braking. But even that wasn't enough to stop it sometimes. I thought, I've got to start using the back brake here. So um, it's throttle to get the wheel up, brake to get the wheel down. I wrote a whole chapter on wheeling techniques. I became an expert at it. I went um, to, I took up AMCA motocross and that was even better for doing wheelies. I got a Kawasaki KX400, which was the fastest motocrosser of the time. And I got my own motorcycle stunt show, Dave Smith Motorcycle Stunt Show, where I'd do wheelie demonstrations at um, track days and drag race meetings and school fairs and, um, and anywhere that wanted somebody. And I got paid £100 a time for that. But it wasn't a full-time job. I still worked at the council. And um, anyway, I was a civil engineer at 16 in Manchester Town Hall. And um, that's another story. What else have I got? Yes, you've... Well, my fastest motorcycle crash. Ah, right. I did buy another motorbike for the road. But my dad said you're limited to 250cc. Now, I'd had a Honda 500 for, and the Honda 250 was a twin, but they bought out a new model, a 500 twin. I thought my dad won't notice the difference. So I was friends with the Honda dealer, who was also the Montessa dealer, who I bought my trials bikes from. I said, I'll have this um, new 500 twin Honda, but before I take it home, put on the 250 stickers on the side panels. They're not stickers, they were badges. So they fixed the 250 badges on it. <laughs> and I took the bike home. I mean, I'd looked, he said, looks a bit big for a 250, that. And I said, well, it's just a heavy, heavy bike, you know. So I never did tell him. <laughs> but um, my fastest motorbike crash was in 1977. And I was going to a place in Bolton, the Kawasaki dealer called Doug Atkins, to get a sprocket for my motocrosser so I could make it higher geared to go faster and um, do wheelies at high speed because motocrosses are quite low-geared. And I was going along on full throttle, like I always did, on the motorway, doing about 120 miles an hour. And this Scimitar GTE 3-litre was behind me in the flash lane, flashing his lights, like wanting to get past, and I was already on full throttle. So I pulled over to the middle lane, and he, 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 he got past me. I thought, well, I can slipstream behind him and go a bit faster. So I got in his slipstream, and I reached about 125 miles an hour on that 500 Honda. But the wind was oscillating this side and that side with eddies and causing a vibration. And I got a tank slapper, which is, it was about seven, it was like about seven or eight times a second. And it got more and more violent and more and more violent. I never took the throttle off. The weight went on the front wheel. It went worse, so I couldn't. Took the throttle off 
and eventually it went that bad it was going from lock to lock to lock to the steering stop like 45 degrees I had to let go of the bars and I just jumped off the back and I could hear the tyre going screeching side to side down the road and I jumped off the back at 125 mile an hour and I felt like just pause there for a second I was you're just in that uh, very second you're hanging off the back of a bike. No, I, I'd leapt in the air and jumped off because I just couldn't hold on anymore. It was shaking that bad. The bike was bouncing side to side. So I, I jumped off the back and I was tumbling over and over. And I didn't know where up or down was I was going that fast. I felt like I was a little money spider inside a matchbox being shook around, hitting all the six sides and bouncing around. But it was me tumbling over on the ground. I stopped tumbling, I ended up on my front, on my elbows, on my knees, still sliding along, probably at 100 miles an hour by then, and the car was disappearing in the distance. You never stopped. And I could, my bike was still in the fast lane, sliding along, getting further and further away from me because steel hasn't got a lot of grip on tarmac, whereas flesh and bone does. And I was amazing braking forces I could feel myself slowing down really fast and the only thing that was going through my head then was oh shit there could be a car coming up behind me I'm in the fast lane and there was arm core in the middle central reservation and a bit of grass and before I even come to a stop I went into a right hand roll and jumped on the grass and jumped up and looked round luckily there wasn't a car coming I looked to my right and my bike was still sliding down the fast lane this is how quick it all happened, the sparks going. And then it came to a stop in the middle of the fast lane. And I sat down on the arm core. And that's when the pain hit me. I didn't feel a thing until then. All the adrenaline. I didn't break a single bone. But I had severe multiple lacerations. I was in Rochdale Infirmary for two weeks. Um, having physio to get me mobile. And I had a lot of lots and lots of stitches. Then my belt had took a gouge in, out in the side of my tummy. But it was mainly my elbows and my knees which were badly oh, worn away. I'm down to the bone. Did you have any elbows on these left? Well, my right elbow, there's a scar there. There was a hole about an inch and a half wide and about an inch long and about two inches long and about an inch deep in the flesh. And you could see the bone had been worn away. And you could see the tendon going round the bone and the nerve was there as well. And the doctor said, you're very lucky that nerve's not been severed, otherwise you'd have had a paralysed forearm. You know the rest of your life. But um, that's another lucky escape. What else? Uh, right, fastest motorbike. Oh, hill I competed, trials, motocross, sprints, hill climbs, hill climbs on tarmac. At Baiting's Dam, I got the fastest time of the day, 22nd of July 1977. Um, first bungee jump was in the Isle of Man during TT week. And then I crashed, this was in 1979, whilst wheeling around. The story about the first bungee jump is we get we go on the steam packet company um, ferry. And we got there at about six o'clock in the morning. No, it was be about four o'clock, five o'clock, and we were driving along Douglas Prom to the hotel, and there was this big crane, and it's the first time I've seen a real live bungee jump. I've seen it on TV. I thought, wow, I'm going to try that. 
somebody, so we went to the hotel and dropped my bags off. And I went back on my own, because I was drawn to it like a magnet. And everyone else had gone by then. And so they weighed me, because they got to know what height to take you up at. And the, the, the cradle that you jump out of, they put it over the, the harbour wall and you, they just dip the head in the sea. You know, they could calculate it that good from from your body weight, how low you were going to go. And um, all this took some time and I, and I was a bit dubious about going because I wanted to see somebody do it close up. But no one else arrived. So by this time, the tide had gone out. So I was jumping over the hard sand. So I said, come on, get in there. So I got in and we went up and I went... The hotel's a three, four storey highs and they've got roofs and they've got chimney pots. I'm going up and up and looking down on these chimney pots. And it always looks higher when you're looking down and looking up. So we got to the top and I thought, shit, this looks fucking high, you know. And, and I'd no, nobody was there. And the guy said, right, I'll blow my whistle three times. Oh, and take the bar off, right, step forward with your feet on the edge. Oh, and they'd put the um, harness on me. Now, being a scuba diver, I'd had clips and harness for diving in poor visibility so you don't get lost and you keep clipped to the shop line. And this clip would come off sometimes. If the line got twisted and pushed against the spring-loaded clip on the carabiner, it can come unclipped. And that's the last thing I wanted on a bungee jump, coming unclipped. But the, the carabiners all had screw fixings, so I checked all of them personally. And all this took a bit of time. By, by this time, the tide had gone out. And I was at the top, and he said, step forward, lean forward, hold the rail. When I blow the whistle, go three, three blows. And he went, beep, beep, beep. And I wasn't expecting that. I thought he was going to go, and I weren't ready. And I'm losing my bottle. And I said... Oh dear, he said, well, we can come down. And I thought, in the basket, and I thought, no, I can't do that, I can't do that. I was shitting myself, I was shitting This is, the anticipation of jumping was worse than jumping itself, honestly, because I just, eventually I dove off head first and went down over this hand, and what a relief, what a great. That was, but the, if the friends had been there, I'd give me on, I'd have, I'd have gone straight away, but because I'd drug it out so long and it was... Anyway, that was my first bungee jump in the Isle of Man. Um, then, when I left school, I started work and I was a cripple. I overcompensated for my um, disability by going to the gym and building myself up. For 14 years, I went weight training regularly, vigorously, and I built myself up into a superstar champion. That's what you can do when you're disabled. You can overcompensate. Like a blind man develops good senses of smell, and people develop other things to, to cope with things, don't they? So that's what I've done. Um, as 1980, I set the world record for the longest continuous motorcycle wheelie at Aintree Road Race Circuit. Um, during a race meeting, that was 18 miles. In 2006, I went. I found that there was another um, wheelie competition at Elvington, the world's fastest flying kilometre wheelie. And by that time, I'd been riding off-road bikes for 
30 years. And I thought, what are these super bikes like today now? So I got myself an R1 Street Fighter, like a motocrosser on steroids. It was three times the brake horsepower as the 750 Honda and half the weight. It was mind-blowing. It pulled wheelies in third gear from 50 mile an hour to 150 mile an hour. So my first run at Elvington, I got a terminal speed. The run is three miles long. There's a measured kilometre in the middle. You've got to be on one wheel when you enter the kilometre and you've got to wheel it all the way through it and your speed is measured electronically at the end. My first run was 154 mile an hour. But it weren't fast enough. Somebody got 172 that year, Terry Calcott, he was called. And next year, I went in 2007, and I took my KX400 Kawasaki, because they had a 600cc class, and I did 79.9 mile an hour on my Kawasaki, which won that world record for 2007 and 2008. And that still stands today, because none of the 600cc bikes could manage to do it for the full kilometre. So... Well, that's, and they don't run that class anymore, so that still stands. The longest wheelie has been beaten many times since then. But it's illegal to wheelie on the road. It's an instant ban if the police catch you. It didn't used to be illegal. I got caught doing a wheelie up Stockfield by the police in 1975. And they pulled me over and they said, what do you think you're doing? I said, uh, well, I was just practicing, you know. And the, I got a court summons and the offence was driving in such a position as to not be in full control of the motorcycle. So I went to court and pleaded not guilty. I said to the judge, look, I'm a world record holder. This is my profession. I'm an expert at wheeling. I was in full control. But he threw the book at me and gave me another point anyway for points for... And I, when you get three points on your licence, you got a ban in those days, so I got banned. Again, that was my second ban. The first one was for speeding through speed cameras that just come out. Anyway, in 1990, I took up, we went on a world trip, um, and I took up scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, my first ever scuba dive. And I'd always wanted to do it, but I didn't start until 19. 89 and then I got me um, Chad sack and got BSAC qualified and went all around Britain, north, east, south and west. There's more shipwrecks around Britain than anywhere in the world. You've heard Britannia rules the seas and the British Navy built the British Empire by trade and industry and of course we had the best navy in the world, but there's, there's more shipwreck diving around Britain than anywhere. The whole German fleet was scuttled in Scapa Flow, Scotland. We dived on a weekly basis, summer mainly, winter often the weather's too bad. Around the world it's paddy, and most of the diving is in crystal clear tropical waters, which is beautiful. In fact, the best dive of my life was in the Galapagos Islands. That's, we went to Galapagos when I spent 10 days going around Ecuador on a motocrosser. That's another story. But um, that was amazing. The wildlife was so tame in, in Ecuador. Um, the shipwreck diving around Britain is a whole different matter because we've got 40 foot tides 
and we've got poor visibility we've got cold water and um, it's a hell of a lot of different <laughs> more dangerous BSAC training is a lot more thorough but we were diving on shipwrecks all around Britain every week salvaging portholes and brass cases and we went to Ireland for, every year and dived on a ship called the Laurentic. That's a white star liner. It was sunk in 1917 during the First World War. It was taking a shipment of gold bullion to Canada to pay for munitions and it hit a German mine in the mouth of Loch Swilly in Northern Ireland and sank in 40 metres of water and it's still on the seabed. It was professionally salvaged at the time by divers in hard hats and lead boots, but it was difficult because the ship was filled with water and it had a hole in the bottom and all gravel and silt was going in and the gold was right in the bilges at the bottom because it weighed a lot. 3,632 gold bars at the time was worth over a million pounds, I think, at the time. But it'd be each bar, when we dived it in 1990, was worth 250,000 pounds. So you'd only need four bars, sorry, 40 bars, to get a million pounds. No, four, 250,000 pounds is four bars. Four bars to a million pounds. But there were 3,600 knob bars went down. And it's been salvaged again and again and again. There's bars uh, missing, isn't there? Yeah, there's 25 bars unaccounted for. Now, when we dived it, a chap called Ray's cousins had the salvage rights, and he came diving with us each time we went. But we never found any gold. There's a nice comical story here. One of the divers had a blacksmith shop, and he brazed together a brass piece, the same shape as a gold bullion bar, filled it with molten lead so it weighed the same, polished it, polished it and polished it so it was gleaming gold and it looked and felt very much like the real McCoy. Not that I've ever picked up a genuine gold bar but this looked of business. We took it to Ireland with us and one of the divers took it down and placed it at the bottom of the shop line in the wreck where Ray, would, Ray Cousins would find it. So he went down and he couldn't believe his eyes, he found this bar. But it's stamped with the lead was put in, fool's gold underneath, so he knew it weren't real. But when we get back to um, Port Salon, the, the little harbour nearest to the wreck, we'd do a bit of fishing on the way as well and catch some fish. And the best fish are always lying caught fresh straight out off a line into the frying pan. We took garlic with us and lemon and seasoning and we had, you know, a bit of a... A feast on the way back into port and there'd be some ladies there wanting one or two fish and there'd be some nosy people looking what we'd caught what we brought up off the wreck what brass and someone must have spotted this gold bar because it was on the deck and then we go to what's called the bucket bar it's a local pub in the harbour for a pint of guinness while we're unloading the unloading the stuff and putting it in car boots and then we'd have a pint of guinness and we took this gold bar into the pub and put it on the bar of the pub with a resounding clunk. 
You can imagine the atmosphere. Jaws dropped. Within minutes, the harbour master came. And then the police came. And then the local radio station came. The newspaper came. Everybody, the world spread like wildfire, this. <laughs> oh. But it was just a joke. <laughs> yeah, it was a good prank. Yeah. It were good days and good times. It was a good idea, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, that was the Laurentic dive anyway. Um, Skewer. Oh, another near-death experience. It wasn't really near-death, but it could have been. It was um, my dream car when I was young was always an E-Type Jag, like everybody wanted, wanted an E-Type Jag at that time. But then when I saw a Corvette Stingray with a 7.5-litre V8 Chevy engine in it with a fantastic roaring, I thought, oh, God, I want one of them. And my mate from school, whose bike I first had me ever ride on, we got a contract working in California and he got a Corvette and I went there for my holidays and did it. He took us to tour and I went about half a dozen times, you know, year after year. Great place to go for your holidays when you got free accommodation and my mate there. So I bought myself a Corvette one year. Um, it was less than a year old, it was mint, but it already depreciated. So I drove it around Nevada and Arizona and Mexico and um, Utah and um, all the states. And then I drove it across to New York and shipped it home and imported it. It came to Liverpool docks on a ship two weeks later and I had to pay car tax and VAT and import duties and I registered it. And it was my pride and joy, it was mint. But I still drove it around full throttle everywhere. And I took it to drag race meetings. I took my bikes on the trailer and I used to drag race. I, oh, I put an LT1 high lift camshaft in it and a four barrel all the carburetor and bit headers, manifolds and uprated the suspension. And it, was, um, it wasn't as quick as the big um, dragsters or the seriously tuned up ones, but it was fun to race it. And, uh, it had a limited slip differential, so both the wheels used to spin, not just one. And you could drift it around corners and slide it. And um, So it was one sunny evening, I decided to take it out for a run over my favourite moorland roads. We used to race on the motorbikes, on public roads, you know. And a bike came past me. Choom, I thought, red, red to a bull this, I've got to go for this. So this was going up Buxton's Road. When we got to Grain's Bar, we turned left down towards Denshaw and I passed him accelerating from the, from the giveaway there and got in the lead all the way down to Denshaw, which is a 30 limit because there's crossroads there. So I slowed down for the crossroads. The bike went through, which I thought was a bit dodgy because if a car had come out the side, he would have been into that. So I was, <clears throat> then you're going up the hill towards the Ram's Head and after, after you've left and you're in the... It was 60 mile an hour blanket cover then. I think it's all 40 mile an hour or 30 mile an hour all the way along. But um, there's a slight left-hand bend. And just before the bend, there's a little bit of a dip. And as you go through the dip, 
No, there's a little bit of a raise. And if you go over the raise, it, it, you, your back end was a bit light and it started to drift out. So I steered into the drift like you do, but then the dip meant that the wheels gripped and it put me into a severe right-hand spin at about 100 mile an hour. And I spun round backwards across the road. Good job there was no oncoming traffic coming down. And the back end went into um, a dry stone wall retaining, a retaining wall, about a metre high. And that catapulted the car end over end three times, cartwheeling, sky, dirt, sky, dirt, sky, dirt. And it landed on its belly. And I thought, this thing's going to blow up with all this fuel in the tank and everything. And I've been racing it, the engine was red hot. As soon as it stopped, I'd put one hand on the seat belt, one on the ignition, pulled it, pulled it, opened the door and jumped out in about one second flat and run across the road, expecting it to blow up. And I turned round, I couldn't believe the carnage. It hadn't blown up, it, but there was no bodywork left on the car. All fiberglass, all the wings were missing, everything. And there was only one wheel on it. Well, there was one wheel broken off underneath and three of the tyres had been ripped off the rims. So <laughs> it was in a right mess and I didn't get a scratch. I didn't even get whiplash neck, not even a broken fingernail. The motorbike came back down. He said, you all right? I'm stood there. I said, yeah. He said, right, don't tell them how we're here. Don't. I said, you're right, go on. And he rode off. And then these three fishermen came over from a, 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 um, a reservoir across the fields. They'd heard what they thought was a plane crash or something. And they couldn't believe they saw the car there, all in bits of me stood round and I thought, oh, that looks a mess, you But I was okay. And then I looked at the um, the wall and all, I was picking bits of bodywork up and bringing them back and putting the wings right, sort of in position and so it didn't look as bad when the police come, you know. And um, Then I noticed all the coping stones on the top of the wall had gone and they weren't over the wall. They were a hundred feet up the hillside in the mowing grass. So I had to run up and down there, throwing all these stones back down, trying to make it look like a less impact. Eventually the police car did arrive and he said, what happened here then? Well, I just um, must have hit a slippy bit on that bend and it just spun off and at the wall. Oh dear, that's a bit of a mess. He said, were any other cars involved? I said, no, 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 just me. Oh, well, I'll call the breakdown truck then. And he went, that were it. <laughs> so, an hour or two, an hour later, the, the breakdown truck come with a trailer and it took till dark to winch the car on its belly onto the trailer. And um, I walked it down to the, the junction Did at the you keep? I remember seeing as a child, you had the, the badge off the bonnet of the car. You kept the badge. For, for... No, that was the Institute of Advanced Motoring badge. But it had a crack in it though. Yeah. So you told me that it was from the... From the Corvette, yeah. It, it, I found it on the road afterwards. It had come off the, the, somehow in, in the carnage. And so I picked it up and it, even the badge were cracked. It's an enamel steel badge. But, um, so that was my spectacular bike crash. Um, you mean your ca yeah, car crash? Car crash, yeah. Just yes. to clarify, this is the prologue. This is the prologue, yeah. So, I took up Surfacus Arts in 2006, trapeze, unicycle riding. And, um, oh, then I went on the Ecuador motorcycle adventure. 
that's a, that's another story. We, well, there was twelve of us went. No, there were sixteen of us went. It was a seven fifty club. We never met each other. We met on the internet, and it was five thousand pounds, which you get sponsorship for. But I just paid the five thousand for the SOS Children in Need charity in the capital of Ecuador, Quito, um, for the for the children, save our soul, save our children, SOS. And we very varied terrain from burning deserts down at sea level to up above the snow line, up volcanoes above 19,000 feet, up and round tracks through jungle-like forests where there'd been massive millions of tons of landslides of trees and rocks and boulders washed away in torrential storms, torrential rain. Some one one of the nights it went only a third of the bikes had headlamps, and we were way behind schedule one day, and we were driving along this mountain top with sheer drops on the left and the right, and the road was a dirt track, and there was fallen trees and potholes, and it was dark, and we didn't have lot, and it was pounding down with rain all day, and I'd I give me a headache because I had my visor open so I could see, and it wouldn't steam up. And rain was hitting the with such force it was giving me earache and headache, and it was one of the hardest rides in my life. That that ride that day. Um, some of the lads got lost and left behind. One lad spent uh, took a, a, a string hammock and he had to put it up between trees in the jungle to keep away from the ants and slept one night in the jungle. Um, but we'd got some hotels. One of the hotels was built entirely out of bamboo. Bamboo floors, bamboo walls, bamboo roof, and the dining area was outside with a bamboo roof, and it was open. And there were these um, hummingbirds feeding from sugary water feeders round the side, which were beautiful to look at. And then it went down. The food we had the local cuisine, which was very interesting. Um, when it goes dark on the equator, it goes from brilliant sunshine to pitch black in a few minutes, very fast, because the sun is going straight down. And also it, it comes up at six o'clock in the morning and it's light and it goes down at six o'clock at night and it goes dark. And that's it, 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of blackness. That's what you get on the equator. Um, or oh, when I, I met um, a couple called Mark and April, who were sailing around the world and they'd gone through the Panama Canal to the Galapagos Islands and they were qualified paddy instructors, scuba divers. I spent the day scuba diving with them. But they had a close encounter with pirates in the, um, the Pacific Ocean. And pirates can take over a little ship like that, they've got guns and they can kill you and rob you and scuttle the boat, you never seen again, they get away with murder literally. But luckily, it was just about to go dark and they could see these pirates miles away in speedboats. So they t the no lights on, they altered the course, it went pitch black and they never saw them again because you couldn't find them in the dark with no lights. The pirates didn't know which way they'd gone. They couldn't hear them either because it was a sailboat with no engines. But they could hear the, the boats in the distance in the blackness trying to find them.
Mm, you'd give him see the lights, wouldn't you? You've got to see the lights to use them. Yeah. So, um... You're going to cover all this in more detail, though, aren't you, haven't you? Yeah. A good old motorcycle, aren't you? Um, I had more heart surgery again in 2009. My mitral valve was, was, was severely regurgitating, leaking. So I had um, Gore-Tex tyres put on. And then I got fluid on my pericardium sac, which built up pressure and stopped the blood getting to my heart. And my pulse was racing because it had no blood. To, and I was admitted to Oldham Hospital on the coronary ward. And the... the um, the doctors kept me in there for five days. They didn't drain the fluid off. It was a bit tricky because they've got to get a big curved needle and put it in under your sternum into your pericardium sac without cutting any arteries or internal organs or bleeding because that would be fatal. But I put three stone on in five days because my internal organs are packed in. It were all water. And I were in there five days and every, each night there was... a one of the patients on that ward passed away and I thought it's my turn next but they took me by emergency ambulance to Withenjar Hospital where three doctors met me on arrival and immediately drained my pericardium sac but then I needed heart surgery again because the Gore-Tex tyres had been ripped and um, I've got a metallic mitral valve in there you can hear it clicking uh, if, you, yeah, if you wonder what that, that, what that sound is it's not a watch it's his heart that microphone's right next to your heart, so it's probably picking you up very clearly. Well, I, I can't hear it, because it's with me all the time. My brain cuts it out. I don't hear it. Well, you'll more certainly hear it when you watch this back. You can hear it now, can you? Yes. Oh. It sounds, like, it sounds <laughs> like a watch. Yeah, that's me my actual valve. Um, other things I've done. Biplane wing walker with the Bretling Flying Circus. Um, that was interesting. The, the pilot was also a skydiver. And he said to me, like, if, you, if you're confident and you're waving your arms about, you'll do more exciting aerobatic manoeuvres. But if you're like, <gasps> it'll just take you up for a flight and keep it nice and steady and bring you down again. So I didn't stop waving my arms all the time. I wanted to go up with me, me, me jump, me, me skydiving rig on and jump off the plane, but he said that's not an option. For, firstly, we're not flying at altitude. You won't have time for your parachute to open. It's more interesting if you're near the ground. And we were doing like barnstorming over the, the, um, the hangar roofs and doing stalls and coming sideways I wanted to do a barrel roll but he didn't actually quite do a barrel roll he was going diving and swooping and coming up and, and I didn't stop waving I was doing all that all the time but um, so that was interesting hot air ballooning that's quite interesting you I was came there in. for that you, you came on the second one yeah that was good we learnt quite a lot about piloting them you can actually choose where you're going to go the pilot these two were dropping pennies over the side, but the pilot was just going, little spit, I'm watching it. I said, but, and I was right next to him. I said, what are you doing? And he's watching the wind shears, because the balloon goes with the wind, and we might be at a 1,000 feet, or 2,000 feet, or three, or it could be as low as 500 feet, but the wind at different altitudes 
especially over rough terrain, goes in different directions, you get wind shear. So if you want to go that way, and you spit, and you see your spit going this way, and then lower down it's going that way, you just vent a bit of air off, go down to that altitude, and then go where you want to go. Well. To a certain degree. To a certain degree, yeah. Yeah. So it's not just chance going with the wind. And you can also turn it. There's vents that that let air out horizontally to give a sideways flush to, to, to turn the balloon, as well as go up and down and turn it and steer it in directions. So relatively, you can have full control if you're lucky and if you're skilled. Yeah. Um, on the landing, this was a virgin balloon, which has got 16 people in a massive basket. And it's a bloody big balloon because a lot of the outside balloons only can carry two people. This must be eight times as big volume for a hot air to lift 16 people. But when it comes into land, it lands in a predetermined field with a long run at it. And the first time I did it, we were coming down near the air one. And we were going to land in this field, and I thought, oh, right next to them. And then he puts the booster on and made it rise again to get over the A1, and we landed just past the A1. And um, but this time when we landed, what it, what happens is the basket hits the ground, and the balloon catches whatever wind there is, and it pulls the basket on its side. But we know which way it's going to go, so we're all sat down with our backs to the direction we're going, holding on. So so when the basket goes over, effectively on our backs, and it drags along, and the, the balloon's venting all the hot air, and it comes to a stop, and we just climb out of the basket, which is on its side. That's the landing. So it's quite interesting, isn't it, hot air ballooning? Um, my parachute crash. That's another story. It was just after COVID lockdown. Because you can't social distance when you're all cramming into a jump plane. And it was my 310th jump on the 5th of June 2021. And because it was my first jump back after nearly a year, I had to do a solo jump. Because I, I didn't jump during the winter. I waited till the summer when the fine, fine weather was there. And um, so being a solo, I had to leave first, which was furthest away from the drop zone. First, I have to pull a low altitude, so each person that leaves later pulls at a higher and higher altitude, then nobody can fall into anybody else's canopy. So when I got eventually back to the drop zone, I was very low on altitude, and I didn't have enough to do the left-hand landing pattern. And the drop zone rules are that everybody has to do a left-hand landing pattern so there's no collisions. People aren't coming in this way and that way. And I should have done a right-hand pattern because that was running 90 degree turn into wind. Or I should have landed downwind, but I thought I could do it. But I wasn't current and I couldn't. So when you turn, you lose altitude fast. And I realised I was losing altitude too fast, so I let go of my toddles to get a straight level canopy to get create lift, but it was too late. And I spiralled into the ground like a ton of bricks for the last 100 feet. I realised I was going to hit the ground hard. I could see it coming up fast. And I thought, I'm going to impact the ground best you can. Your legs together, knees bent, to, and try and take the impact in a, in a roll. But the impact was so great that my heels hit my buttocks with such force, it sprained my knee joints open, and my spine impacted down through my pelvic floor, breaking lumbar two, three, and four. 
and my coccyx, which is the hardest bone in your body, breaking my pelvic floor, breaking my pelvic ring, both my hips and my left femur was shattered into 12 pieces called a left comminuted fracture. And that's damaged the pulse and the vascular damage. So now I get blood pooling in my left leg two years later still. And it, my spinal cord was squidged, squashed and stretched, but not severed. So the doctors said, when I was in hospital, they tested me and my left leg was paralyzed. I couldn't move it, but there was about one square inch on the top of my left ankle, which I could just feel a feather touching it when that's the only bit I could feel. So they said your spinal cord's intact and it'll take about a year to grow back. Your skin heals very quickly. Your bones heal in about six weeks. Your tendons heal in about 13 weeks and your nerves can take up to a year. This is all because the blood flow to your skin is good. You've got good blood flow to your bones because they produce your bone red blood cells. You've got less blood flow for your tendons and you've got even less blood flow to your nerves. So that's why your nerves take so long to heal. So after about a year, I could move my leg. And now it's over two years on and I still can't walk without crutches. I was I in... just lucky to be alive. The, the ambulance was called and it was didn't come after 10 minutes. So they called a helicopter ambulance and that came in after another t 10 minutes. And it took them half an hour to stabilise me. Can you explain? Because you've, you've told me this before. You had, so that's a near-death experience, and you... you. I landed with my legs in front of me, and my arms in front of me, and my head in front of me, in an impossible position. Tell us tell us about what was going through your head when they were loading you onto the helicopter. And you were I'll going... tell you what was going through my head all the time. I was conscious and alert the whole of the time. I could hear people talking. Other skydivers, the two had landed nearby. The controller came over on his quad bike for an ambulance. His wife, who was a nurse, came over. The first aide came over, but they decided not to move me because I was awake, breathing, talking. They put monitored my pulse and blood pressure and waited for the ambulance to arrive. Um, during that time, I was in extreme pain, undescribable pain. I knew it was very serious. I thought such g-forces from impacting the ground people can get rupture of the main artery from the heart a big thick one and that you die within seconds if that goes because your brain doesn't get any blood but uh, that hadn't happened but i do take warfarin anticoagulants because of my heart valve and i knew i'd probably got internal bleeding which i did have from broken ribs as well and um I had a strange experience. I got, I could see vibrant, bright, pearlescent spectrum colours of the rainbow. Everything was really bright. And I knew what people were going to say before they said it. There was like, and I could hear music like a deep, powerful electronic synthesizer, louder than a church organ. And I could hear this and I could hear people talking and I could and I could see these colours and I couldn't explain why I knew what was going to happen next or and I couldn't explain why I knew what people were going to say next before they said it. 
it was like a, watching a video that somewhere I'd been before and experienced it before and I was in the same place again. I didn't know where the place was, but I knew I'd been there before. It was a strange experience. I think um, they maybe they'd give me some really strong painkillers, barbiturates or something that could mess your brain up a bit, can't it? So I, I heard that um, they think that when you're on your deathbed and you have a death experience that your brain releases uh, like a form of DMT. Endomorphs. It releases, it releases chemicals at the end of your life in your brain that, that have quite a lot of similar effects to what you've just been explaining there. Yeah. So, eventually, they'd stabilised me somehow, and I've still got my jeans on, my t-shirt on, my jumper on, my full jumpsuit which zips up the front, my harness, leg straps, chest strap, shoulder straps, everything. And to get me out of all that, they just cut the straps, cut my clothes with extremely sharp scalpel blade, moved me onto the stretcher, strapped me on and lifted me into the helicopter. And I felt warm and comfortable as the helicopter was taking off. And they took me to Preston Royal Infirmary. And it's lucky that I did have an helicopter because had the ambulance took me to Lancaster or a conventional hospital, Preston's the only one in that area with the latest extreme trauma unit, the latest facilities. And they had a special team of three orthopedic and neurological and um, what's it for controlling blood. My blood had to be stabilised before they could operate on me. And, um, I, and they said it was a horrendous experience. Nine hours in surgery, I lost nine pints of blood. Two of that, when they put blood in me, they'd scooped it up off the operating table because it's all sterile. And then five days later, I had another nine hours of surgery. The first nine hours was on my left leg. The second was on my pelvic ring and my back. And there's Jesus a lot, I've got a lot of steel, lot of steel work. Oh. But I'm very lucky. Another one of my lying lives. Um, what else am we talking about? That's the end of your prologue, right? Yeah. So that's... Uh... That's what to expect to hear in the full reading of yeah. um, Two and a Half Cats. And there's a message in there for the youth of today, which can give them an inspiration and guidance to decide what they want to do with their lives. Because the amazing thing is, that most people don't realise, is that your subconscious is what controls your life, not your consciousness. And your subconscious sees and believes everything that you see and say. So you can actually train your subconscious by reciting personal positive daily affirmations. And I, I do that every day and it keeps me on the right track to, to achieving things. Um, and you become that which you think about. But... One's own personal thoughts and deeds are in fact the only thing that anybody ever has full control over. And we always do choose them, consciously or not. So think carefully about your thoughts. Choose what you want to think about, because that is what you will become. And the amazing thing is, 
no matter what you choose, you can choose to become whatever you want with your life. And that's my message for the youth of today.